Hosts Elle and Miriam are two black homeschooling moms embarking on a self-defining journey. Listen in on conversations that will encourage you to be your authentic self while uplifting your spirit and motivating your inherent potential. They're defining what culture is for their families and want you to do the same. Bring your children along too so they can meet the cleverly cultured kids. They're all for teaching the babies while they're young, adapting to the challenges of parenting, homeschooling, and being willing to learn the lessons that the children have to offer. It's all about uplifting one another and reclaiming your innate greatness. April is Autism Awareness Month. And today on the Cleverly Changing Podcast, we are revisiting a topic that we've shared multiple times. And that topic is autism. If you are looking for some of our past episodes about the topic, check out episode 56, Children and Developmental Concerns with Dr. Rochelle Whitaker, episode 54, Autism and Education, World Autism Day with Pana Poto, episode 36, Navigating Special Education at Home with Jocelyn Chavis. During this episode, the topic is back in the hot seat. We are chatting with Quiana Darton, and we gained insights from her expertise as a teacher and parent who is raising a Black child with autism. Today's episode is brought to you by Sickle Cell Books. I'm Elle, the producer of the Cleverly Changing podcast. And I'm also parenting a child who is living with sickle cell disease. I've published three books about sickle cell, a sickle cell coloring book for kids, the ultimate sickle cell activity book, and ABCs for sickle cell disease. If you want to learn more about the most common genetic disorder in the world, then head over to my website, sicklecellbooks.com and purchase a book today. Here is something that I want you to explore with your children. According to Spectrum News, many children with autism across Africa stay out of sight. In 2015, there were about 50 child and adolescent psychiatrists for the 1 billion or so inhabitants of Sub-Saharan Africa. Today's African proverb is from Kenya. The water of the river flows on without waiting for the thirsty man. It's now time for the word of the episode. Today's word of the episode is brought to you by the country of Haiti. L'école. L'école. L'école means school in Haitian Creole.
Welcome to another Cleverly Changing Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Elle, and I am the mom of twins. My girls are 13 years old and I homeschooled them for seven years. We are super excited about today's conversation. We have a special guest, but before we tell you who our special guest is, Miriam, please introduce yourself. Hello everyone, I'm Miriam. Mama to four littles. We've been homeschooling for at least five years now. And I am a urban farmer and a writer and all around creative. Miss Quiana, our guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Quiana Darden. I am the mom of an eight-year-old little girl who is on the autism spectrum. And um, I actually used to homeschool her until very recently when I put her into the public schools. Um, I'm also a former elementary school teacher um, and founder of Shining on the Spectrum, where I help parents who are raising children with autism. Incredible. You know, April is Autism Awareness Month for those of you who don't know. And so we are honored to have you here and have a conversation about the spectrum. So we are going to jump into today's conversation. And I'm wondering, can you give our audience a little bit of an idea of what it means to be on the spectrum? So that's a very, that's a good question because a lot of people do not know what autism is. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about it and just questions about autism. So essentially autism, they call it autism spectrum disorder because the way it impacts you, there is a wide spectrum. A lot of people with autism spectrum disorder have communication difficulties. Um, a large percentage are completely nonverbal and use different assistive um, technologies to be able to communicate. Um, a lot of people with autism um, have different social abnormalities. I don't, I don't know the best way to say it, but like are a little socially awkward, don't understand all the typical social, um, you know, don't develop the typical social skills. Um, a lot of people with autism have different sensory difficulties or um, sensory sensitivities, um, but it can completely, it can look different from one person to the next really. Um, but generally it will impact you in the way that it can impact the way you learn, the way you communicate, the way you interact with others, the way you see the world, the way you feel things, light can impact you, noise can impact you. So it's just a huge spectrum of ways that it impacts you, but it's actually a neurological condition um, that at this point it's impacting, I believe one in 44 children today are diagnosed oh, wow. with autism. Oh wow, a large number, right. <laughs> that makes it seemed but then and then wow, one because like 40. you were saying that the spectrum is so broad because I know from my own experience my mother's neighbor's son is autistic and he didn't start speaking until he was like four or five years old and things and one of my cousins is also autistic but he's very talkative and he's very everything and to look at him you would never think that he was on the spectrum. So to see, to hear that statistic that is one in 40 is, you know, it makes it seem like it's a lot, but I think it might even be more than that because there's a lot of folk who don't outwardly appear to be what most people consider to be autistic that, you know. Exactly. There. 
Yeah, um, I know for sure that girls are less likely to be diagnosed with autism because autism can look different in girls um, than boys, you know, typically. Um, there are a lot of adults who are now just being diagnosed with autism in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So um, I know one thing that's interesting is they used to used right. to hear the word Asperger's. I feel like I'm saying it wrong, Asperger's syndrome. Now they don't, they've lumped it all together. So they don't break all of the different like labels apart like they used to. So Asperger's syndrome is just autism, um, which was what they consider, I say, quote unquote, high functioning, because that's not a term that we generally like to use in the autistic community, like high functioning or, you know, whatever. But um, they used to have these different categories and now they've lumped them all together into just autism. So things have changed a lot in the way that they label and, and diagnose and all that kind of stuff. I didn't realize that they had stopped using the term Asperger's because I remember watching America's Next Top Model and I remember one of the contestants, now this was years ago, so it would have been one of the first three um, episodes like of the shows. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the contestants, she said that she had Asperger's. So that goes to tell you that it was definitely a long time ago. So I'm wondering, for many people who are concerned about whether or not their child has autism, they often look at the different milestones. You mentioned that you your daughter is on the spectrum. What made you get her tested or identify or even ask whether or not she was on the spectrum or how did that work? Because yeah. it may not have be that you asked. Yeah, so actually it went, so she was diagnosed with two, she's eight now. Um, but before then at a year old, I had to go to her doctor and say, okay, her speech is not developing the way it's supposed to. Her doctor had never said anything to me about it being a concern or anything, but I'm like, what's going on? Because from what I'm reading, her speech is not developing appropriately. So, you know, so I had to bring that up to her pediatrician at the time. She recommended that I start early intervention services through the county that I lived in. We did early intervention speech where they would come out to my house for, I think, 30 minutes a week and work with her. We did that for six months and she did not see any progress. So we were at a year and a half. She was not making any progress in her communication. She wasn't speaking, nothing really. And so that's when her speech therapist recommended that I get her tested for autism because at that point we said it could be more than just, um, you know, like a speech delay. Um, so she was tested. We were on a wait list for, I think, six months. We got her tested for autism at two and then she would she wow. got that diagnosis then <laughs> no i'm not laughing wow. because it's funny but i mean it's just strange so i'm thinking you said a six month waiting list but what is this a transplant you know a heart donor or something why so i'm curious why is it taking that long for someone to be able to get a diagnosis because i'm assuming that not having the diagnosis makes it hold on baby not having a diagnosis makes it a little more difficult to receive services and to make some of these interventions and things so that you can uh, um, progress in a you know more quickly perhaps if that's if that's even a, an ability of the child exactly exactly that's a major problem within the autism community in general is that we have to get on these really long wait lists that it can take a year to start getting services for therapy, um, depending on where you go. And so during that time, a lot of parents, 
don't know what to do. So it's a lot of their children's time. Like our kids' time is just essentially being wasted because imagine six months or a year of not getting the services that you need. And the sooner you start getting services and support, the better. So it is definitely one of the big frustrations in the, in the autism community for sure that I've seen and heard in speaking to different parents. One of my experiences, we have this podcast and I know of, uh, when the pandemic had first started, I had received a message from a parent whose child had just been diagnosed with autism. And she knew that we had the podcast and someone had told her to contact me. And she was like, well, what do I do now? Because when the world shut down, she didn't receive, her child wasn't on any waiting list for the interventions because they just didn't know what was going to happen in the future. And so I was like, I don't, you know, this isn't my expertise. So I, all I could do was put her in contact with other people that I knew who had children who were autistic and maybe they could help her, you know, um, with that unique particular, you know, the unique circumstances of the pandemic starting and her trying to do the best she could to um, provide her child with some type of resources during that particular time. So for you, when the pandemic had started, so that was 2019, your daughter was young. So how how did you navigate pandemic life to now? Um, in terms of like the support that I gave that she was receiving and things like that. Yes. I mean, I, my journey with my daughter and, and support has been back and forth. So we've had periods, I've had periods where I took her completely out of all therapies. Um, and I've had periods where she was in therapy. And I'm trying to think back to when the pandemic hit, she was getting speech therapy. Um, and so what I did was because I'd been in every single session she'd ever been in for speech therapy. I'd seen everything they were working on. I had all the goals and I worked with her at home a lot. So essentially I just had time that I set aside and I worked with her on the skills at home. Um, I felt pretty comfortable researching different activities to work on specific goals that she had. And I just kept up what we were already doing at home, but I just took it to another level once the pandemic hit. Um, so it was actually a pretty easy transition for me or for us when she stopped getting services in person. I feel like near the middle of the pandemic, she started to see one of her older speech therapists virtually. I think that was around the middle of the pandemic. Um, and that was not going very well because virtual speech therapy is just tough for kids. Um, and so we stopped that. And once things got a little better, so I would say around maybe a year ago, she started doing speech therapy in person again. Um, and yeah, and so since then we started doing speech therapy in person, she started doing ABA therapy, which is applied behavior analysis, which is a specific type of therapy for children with autism in person. And, you know, now we're full blown her therapy, her in-person therapy. I see. So you mentioned the two types, speech therapy and ABA therapy. Are those generally the two more dominant therapies that children with autism receive? Yeah, so ABA therapy and ABA therapy is a controversial therapy. I'm gonna say that because I'm sure if any of your listeners have heard about ABA, 
there is a lot of controversy around it, whether it's actually good for people who have autism or not. Um, and I'm just going to say this. So when my daughter was first diagnosed with autism at two, I put her in ABA therapy and it was a horrible experience. Um, it was very, you know, there's a way to do ABA where it's almost like they're training them like puppies. <laughs> um, it's, it's very an old school way of doing ABA therapy. And it was just not good to watch. So I pulled her out after a couple of months. But anyway, there's a new way of thinking related to ABA therapy that is a lot less focused on, um, you know, do what I say, like, uh, what is it called? When you just do what somebody says, you don't think for yourself, you're just like a, like a, a puppy dog, like doing tricks. There's that way. And then there's a new way of doing ABA therapy where they learn a lot of great skills and it helps them be more independent and all of that good stuff. So, um, when you do ABA in that way, it works really, really well. And that is the type of ABA therapy company that my daughter is in now. The first one scarred us for like five years. I didn't do it from two to seven. I didn't, I was scared to try again because it was so bad. Um, but yes, ABA is a really great therapy company if you find a company that has the right mindset around how to work with children with autism. So yes, ABA is one. I know that was a really long answer, but ABA is one. Another common one is speech, just because a lot of people with autism do have speech difficulties in some way. Another one is occupational therapy, because some people with autism have struggles with some of their fine motor skills, gross motor skills. Another one is physical therapy. Some people with autism need to enroll in feeding therapy, because there are a lot of um, feeding difficulties. Some people have difficulty taking in different textures or different, um, some people like won't eat anything other than like Pediasure. So they have very limited number of foods that they will eat, those types of things. So I would say that ABA, speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy, feeding therapy, those are five common therapies um, for children who have autism. Can I switch gears really quickly? I'm thinking when you're talking about the different types of therapies that are available, it made me think about what happens when you're looking at your child and you're wondering what's going on. I find that a lot of people that I've come in contact with, the speech is a big thing. It's like the main tip or offer that I hear mentioned. But are there any other signs that parents may notice in autistic children? I know for my, uh, my cousin, he was um, ADHD and oppositional behavior disorder or something like that was what he had at first. That was the diagnosis at first. And then over time, cause he's a grown up now, it's turned into, you know, he's on the autism spectrum disorder. That's autism disorder spectrum. Is that the right way to say that? Uh, yes, he's so, spectrum I, disorder, yeah. I, and we never really noticed any of that sort of thing with him, but I know, you know, everybody's different. So what are some of the more, maybe more subtle things that kind of fly under the radar, if you know of any? Yeah. And it's, it's, it is really important to note, like you said, autism looks completely different for different people. Um, some people, some children, adults, they communicate just fine. Some can't say a word. Um, some of them have really extreme behavior problems. Some of them you would never know because their behavior is perfect. And I think that's the thing that's tricky about autism. Um, I do know one common sign in little, little kids is toe walking. So
So they will walk on their toes like little ballerinas, but they like, they walk on their toes a lot. That is a common sign of children who have autism. Another one is lining things up like objects. They just will take any object and just line it up. And they'll just like, if it's cars, but they will just line all their cars up. If it's blocks, they'll line all their blocks up. If it's, you know, whatever, they love to line things up. And again, this completely varies, but some commonalities we found, that's one, that's another. Um, another one might be uh, um, sensitivity to like light, sounds, um, different textures. That's a common sign of autism. Um, what else? think about what are other common signs those are a few off the top of my head but it really it really does depend and and you know just because your child may have one of those signs it doesn't mean they have autism you know they have to rank in a certain way and have enough clusters of the symptoms to actually be identified as having autism because there's some children who do line things up, but it doesn't mean they have autism. There's some kids who walk on their toes, but it doesn't mean they have autism. It's when they have a group of these symptoms that are similar that we can say that they have an autism or their doctors can say that they have an autism diagnosis. This is very helpful. And I think, you know, in thinking back about being in a classroom with different children, you know, now I'm like, hmm, you know, sometimes some kids would have behavioral problems, but of course the teacher isn't telling the class whether or not a child has a diagnosis. Um, but I can think back and I can right. say that I'm sure there were some kids in my class who may not have been um, diagnosed because they didn't know, but they often would get in trouble for little things that were like considered behavioral problems. But there probably was a diagnosis there where they needed to be getting interventions. Just thinking back on that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you have a background as a teacher. And you said that you homeschooled your daughter for a period of time. And I know sometimes when I'm online and I'm talking to different people, they often wonder if my child has autism, can I homeschool them? And so can you kind of talk about your experience of feeling comfortable homeschooling your child and just how what that looked like from day to day? Honestly, I loved homeschooling my daughter. I miss it. <laughs> I put her in school. I'm going to skip ahead and then I'm going to go back to answer your question just to share why I put her in school. I put her in school, one, because I wanted her to learn because socializing is such a struggle for her. I wanted her to be in as many opportunities to socialize as possible and be around her peers and learn from people who were not me. Um, like learn from other adults and she's an extracurricular activity. She does gymnastics and cheer and, you know, different things like that. But I wanted to give her more of that opportunity. Um, and I wanted her to learn how to work, not one-on-one -on -one, because that kind of became a crutch for her. She was very used to working with me one-on-one. -on -one. And while for some children that may be easier to break out of for her, I felt like it was kind of, she was getting stuck on that and unable to um, really go into small group settings and be successful. So those are some of the reasons I put her in school, but I miss it so much because I loved homeschooling her. So what that looked like was we did school maybe a couple of hours a day. I had certain skills that we were working on and I didn't use like a set curriculum or anything. It was just based off of whatever the skill we were working on. I would find different activities for us to do. Um, and we 
do like an hour of math, an hour of reading, and then the rest of it will be just life stuff, different. Well, more before COVID hit, we used to go out into the community and, you know, science museums and different things like that, little field trips around the area and do things like that um, as part of her school. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty, pretty fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, so I would definitely say that if you have a child who has autism, it is going to depend on your child, honestly. Um, some parents say they are concerned about some of the behaviors their child has and how do they manage that. I would say the recommendation is what are you doing behaviorally to support your child in general? Um, you know, are you doing an ABA therapy? Are you talking to anyone, any, anybody about behavior? What type of supports you have in place? I know I use certain behavior strategies for my daughter, like first in boards, providing choice, um, you know, really trying to understand the reason behind the behavior, those types of things. If there's a communication difficulty, then it, it can be more of a struggle to teach them certain skills like reading or comprehension when you're reading, things like that. But if you don't personally feel comfortable, I would say talk to someone just because you may not feel comfortable with it. You can talk to someone and get some help on the best strategies that you can use to, to teach your child. Um, I know I personally just had experience because I taught children who had autism, ADHD, emotional disturbance, like all types of different needs who are, you know, different neurodiverse populations. So I feel comfortable with it. But if you don't, I wouldn't allow that to be the reason why you don't homeschool your child. Um, you can speak to different people and get some support and kind of go from there. I know another thing that I did take advantage of support from her public school. So she got speech therapy through her public school. She had not an IEP, but an ISP, I think it's called an individual service plan, where she got 18 hours of speech through the school for free. Um, we had consultative services with a special education teacher, I think um, 30 minutes a month or something like that. So I was able to speak to the special education teacher, get um, at the school that she would have been attending, get advice on working with her on different skills and things like that. So just take advantage of some of the different resources that are available. Um, but I definitely wouldn't allow autism to be the reason why you don't homeschool your child. Thank you for sharing that because it's very empowering to know that you know, you were able to do it and you were able to seek support. Because I think um, having a child that has different learning differences, finding support as a caregiver is important too. So I'm wondering for just your own personal time, were you able to practice self-care? Were you able to, you know, have your own support group um, if you and if you felt like you needed that? Yes, so that is one of the biggest things that I preach in shining on, shining on the spectrum is I think that too often we focus entirely on our kids who do need support, but then we don't think about ourselves at all. And when I speak to a lot of parents, their mental and emotional health are deteriorating because they put so much emphasis and focus on their kids and they don't focus on themselves at all. They don't take a break. They don't do things that are fun for them. Um, you know, and sometimes it's challenging because they can't find childcare because, you know, they're scared to leave their kids with somebody else, whatever the case may be. I know I was extremely blessed that I have a great support system. My mom loves spending time with my daughter. 
So she's like, drop her off for the night, the weekend. She tells me sometimes she can come live with me and you can get visitation. Like my mom loves my daughter. And so she gives me breaks or, you know, when I was teaching and, and still, I'm not when I was teaching, but when I was homeschooling and even now, she'll, my daughter will spend the weekend with her or she'll just spend the night or she'll just go over to hang out with her. Um, so that was a lot of the time where I was able to just do whatever I wanted to do. If I wanted to get a massage, I could have my mom watch her or my brother or whatever. Um, and so I definitely have always practiced self-care and taking care of myself. Um, it's just a priority because I've had times when I didn't and I felt it and it was challenging for me to show up the way I needed to for my daughter because I wasn't taking care of myself. So now I always find time to take care of myself no matter what. That's beautiful. Wonderful. Cause it's, I mean, even when your children don't have special needs, it's still uh, a struggle. Well, I find for myself, it's still a struggle to say, hey, let me take a moment for myself because I feel like there's other things more important that need to be done. But I want to go back really quickly. You said that you um, were, are in education and you dealt with special needs students, correct? Okay. So how does that, how has that impacted the way you, um, the way you parent? in general, I'm curious, because I know kids are kids and kids do kid things that often drive us adults a little batty. And so I'm wondering, how do you approach these instances where, you know, you got to leave where you're going to blow up? (laughs) I've always been told that I have a lot of patience. And I think that working I was in the classroom for six and a half years. You ha- when you're working with children, you have to have a lot of patience. And so I go from teaching 25 kids in a classroom to teaching, like to working with one child. I only have one daughter, one child. It's so much easier. <laughs> so I'm like, I was able to handle 25 kids. I can handle one. So that's how working in the classroom helped me is I just have a ton of patience. And in general, I think that I I also, this is kind of touching on what you said, but a little bit not, but I think it's important for parents of children with autism to hear is that you have to give your kids a break because I think that sometimes we have, you know, we have kids who have special needs and we want to fix every, and I say fix, which is not the right term because your goal should not be to fix your child. You know, they're not a car who needs, who's broken you want to help improve them, right? But you may think, oh, I need to fix this. I need to fix that. I need to fix that. But I worked with kids who had not one diagnosis and there was absolutely nothing going on with them. And they had behavior issues. They had social skill problems. They had, you you know, the list can go on and on. So I think that sometimes we have to give ourselves and our kids a break. Like, it's okay if they're not perfect. They are still children. Children are going to make mistakes. Children are going to do things you don't want them to do, whether they have autism or not. So that is one, one mindset that I take on is that I give her a break. I realize she's a kid. She's eight years old. That's still very, very young. You know, I'm 32 and I'm still trying to figure out this world. She's been on this planet for eight years and she's still trying to figure it out too. So I give her grace. And I think that helps a lot as a parent, but going back to what you said, whenever I feel like I'm getting like frustrated 
is I do, I take that break. I take that time. I walk away. I'm like, either you're going in your room or I'm going in mine. Because sometimes if in, in a time where I'm feeling my like blood pressure start to rise, I know that taking it out on her is not going to help the situation at all. And if she's already in a heightened state because she's frustrated or upset or something, and I come at her with the same energy, that's not going to help the situation. So anytime that I feel like I'm just getting to that point, either you need to go somewhere or I need to go somewhere. And that's generally my mindset or my approach, because otherwise, you know, I'm going to yell and then I'm going to feel bad or, you know, it's just not going to, it's just not going to turn out very good. So usually I find that just taking a break helps the both of us. I think that's something that we all can resonate with because no matter what your child's diagnosis is, there will come a point where you feel a little bit stressed and we all need to take a break and we need to recognize the signs that are saying, hey, it's time to pause because we could all benefit from quiet time or downtime. And what I've heard from different parents that are, who are also teachers is that sometimes they're constantly working or constantly educating their kids and they've had to make a conscious effort to kind of pull back and say, let me just let my child be a kid. And so it sounds like you were kind of speaking to that a little bit where it's like, mm, she can do it tomorrow or you know, in the future, it doesn't mean that everything has to get done as quickly or in this moment. Exactly. Like, and I, that's something actually that my mom helped me with. My mom's amazing. She would see me sometimes and she's like, okay, Kiana, you're all, cause my goal, I'm like, okay, I want to help. I'm going to make it better. I want to, you know, help her improve. And I have all these activities I put it off online, all these things I create that I want to work with her on. And sometimes my mom would be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm working with Ava. What are you doing? Working with Ava. What are you doing? Working with Ava. What are you doing? Working with Ava. And she's like, take a step back. You know, she needs time where you're just her mom. You don't have to always be trying to work on something. And so that was something that she told me, I don't know, probably a few years ago that really helped. It's like, take some pressure off yourself, relax. You know, there will always be something else that you can work with them on, but it doesn't mean that you have to work with them now. You can work with it next month. You know, it's, it's just like, give them a break because they need a break and you need a break too, as opposed to always trying to work on um, you know, something with them. Thank you. I think that was a powerful message that your mom shared that, yeah, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a page from your mom's book <laughs> and keep that in mind. So thanks so much for sharing. You mentioned earlier that you have your, um, organization. Can you tell us how you work with parents? Yes. So. I currently am working with parents just through um, coaching one-on-one -on -one with them. You know, they come and they have a, an area that they want to improve. They want to help their child. They want to figure out the IEP process. They want to figure out how to improve behavior. They want to develop a support plan and find the right therapist, those types of things. That has been the way that I've helped parents thus far. Um, actually, tomorrow, Friday, I'm launching this club that's specifically for parents of children with autism, um, which is going to be a mix of 
coaching, uh, community resources, kind of like a one-stop shop um, that, that helps parents who are raising children with autism. So um, it's going to be between those two, the one-on-one coaching and the, um, the, member, the membership community that I'm developing. I think that's wonderful because there's so there's so little community in the world, it feels like, in many places. And for you to be working towards building that for those who don't have a family nearby or a family that's as um, wise as your mother to be able to say, hey, you got to step back at some point and, and leave some room for just being, you know, I think it's a amazing thing that you have the thought to share this community that you're able to access with others because finding the resources and even knowing what resources to ask for can feel like a really, really big task sometimes. And I just wanna commend the work that you're doing because I think it's so necessary. I mean, it's difficult enough for people that aren't dealing with any special circumstances. So I can imagine that it's even more difficult for others. For sure. For sure. Thank you. And that's actually the reason why I decided to start the community. A lot of parents, they said they feel mm-hmm. alone. And it's interesting, even in like the beginning phases of my journey, I didn't connect with any parents who had autism. I mean, parents who were raising children with autism. It was, I felt alone. I didn't know there were so many parents out there who were raising children with autism when I first, um, when my daughter was first diagnosed, because even though there are quite a number, it feels very isolating and alone. And you look around and you're like, I don't know anybody else who's raising a child with autism. Well, that was my, you know, case other than, you know, my students. So it felt very lonely. And then I started to join like little free Facebook groups and things like that with parents of who are raising children with autism. And I'm like, a lot of people feel the exact same way. A lot of people are struggling to find resources. A lot of people are asking the exact same questions over and over and over. And I'm like, there has to be a better way to navigate this journey. And so that's really what um, prompted me to start. The I'm so curious. I love that you just shared about, you know, you going on to Facebook and finding a community because we cannot rule out the fact that social media can be positive in our lives. And I think for many people, finding community outside of your local area is critical to feeling like, hey, there's other people who are going through the same things I'm going through, which is what you just shared with us. And I'm wondering, out of all the different experiences that you had while homeschooling your daughter, were there any days where it just felt like you experienced breakthrough moments where you were like, ah, I'm glad I'm doing this. Is there anything that comes to mind? Specific moments. Um, I feel like just looking back at the general experience, and where she was when I put her into school, she had such a great foundation. Like when I look back on the entire experience homeschooling her and when I put her into school and the way that, not to say that I need other people's um, 
that other people's opinions of my daughter are more important than my own or what I know is happening in our household. But I had so many people tell me she has such a great skill set. She has such a great foundation. Wow, she can do this. She can do that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I did that. You know, I was working with her. I was her teacher. I made sure she had this foundation set so that when she went into the class, into the public school, she is able to be successful. And that makes me feel really proud as her parent. And even now today, I still work with her at home, but that I think just looking back on the, the, the general experience is that I was able to provide a really good foundation for her. So when she went into school, she was, she's able to be successful. Can I uh, have a quick question? So how, how does she feel about being in the classroom with lots of other children? Does she want to come back to just a one-on-one or is she, you know, diving right on in like, it's the thing to do. He is diving oh, right on. Wonderful. She, I mean, she enjoys it. She really does love going to school. She's a big, she likes to stay busy all day and she's a big people person. So it works for her. One thing I knew when I put her into school though, was that if it did not go well, I was going to pull her right back out. And that's the beauty and the flexibility that I have is that if at any time I feel that that's not the case, then she will no longer be in school. I will start homeschooling her again because my goal is to do what's best for her and what's best for her may change from when she's eight to when she's 10. Maybe at 10, we need to pull her back out and she needs to homeschool for a little bit. Then I might send her back at 13. You know, And knowing that I have that ability and that flexibility to provide her with the level of support that she needs, whether it's at home or in school or whatever the case may be, that is powerful because I do know there are some people who cannot do that or they don't feel comfortable enough or confident enough in their abilities to do that for their kids. So right now she loves it. She's excited to go to school every single day. Um, But if that ever changes, we're going to make some changes to how she's getting her education. I like that you just shared that because I put my kids in school this year for the first time too. And so it's a completely new experience for my family. But what I always tell myself is that you're always going to try to do what's best for your child in that moment. And so right now it's best that they be in school, but in the future, if something should change and I need to bring them home, I want to have that confidence and the ability to make that decision for them because we always have to kind of evaluate it, what is best for my child so that they can learn the best, matriculate the best and interact with others. I think having a healthy person who is able to socialize, who is able to um, to learn and enjoy learning. I think that is the key. And in thinking about our homeschool philosophies and what we do, we have to always remember to have the goal of enjoying learning. Because sometimes in our homeschools, we it's all work, and no play. And so we have to learn how to balance that. So yeah. I'm so happy that you shared that with us. And as we kind of wrap up the conversation, I want to know, are there any type of experiences that you've had on your journey as a parent where it was like, I wish I had found that out earlier. So 
Have you, um, you know, it could be interventions. It could be really anything. Was there anything on this journey that, because we don't know what we don't know. So is there anything that you would share? Um, one of the, okay, two are coming to mind. I would say that one is to be okay stepping away from the rule book. There are certain recommendations that people may have. I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about my personal experience. For the first probably three years after my daughter's diagnosis, I followed what others said I should be doing for her. And I was not seeing the results that I would have expected to see. When she was around five years old, I said, okay, it's time to do something different because we're three years in and I'm not, I'm doing everything they're saying to do. And it's not, I'm not really seeing the results I expected. That's when I flipped, I flipped the script is what I say. And um, I started working with her based on things that I found in my own research, based on just knowing her, based on my experience as a teacher, working with other you know, neurodivergent populations. And it's when I changed up what I was doing that I started to see results that I would have expected to see before when I was solely relying on the therapists and the doctors and things like that. So I would say that at, at any moment, if something's not working for your child, yet you're doing everything that the experts and professionals say that you should do, don't be afraid to try something new. Um, and because it just may work better for you. You know, you, you just, you just, you just never know. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know that with autism, sometimes there is a stigma in our community about labels, about diagnosis, and that can sometimes prevent parents from getting their children the intervention they need. What do you say to people who are concerned about those labels? How do you erase that stigma in those type of households and communities? I would say look at look at it. I mean, I know it's a it's a it's a neurotypical condition, but look at it. My daughter has asthma. If I said, oh, I don't want my daughter to have an asthma label, so I'm not going to give her her inhaler, guess what's going to happen? She's not going to breathe. She's going to be in the hospital all the time. She's not going to get the support that she needs. But if I understand that she has asthma and she needs to take her inhaler, guess what? She can go out and play. She can you know, do all the things that normal kids like to do. She's a part of fun activities where she can be active. It's a similar mindset. If you are so stuck on that label, your child is not going to get the support they need and it's going to be harder for them. It's not going to get easier. If I just said, oh, I don't want to believe my daughter has autism, I'm not going to put her in speech therapy. If I'm not going to you know, get her any of the support she needs, she will be in a completely different place. So I would say it can be challenging. I didn't want to accept the fact that my daughter had autism. I wanted to think she was a late talker. And I held on to that for a long time, even after her autism diagnosis. But I still was doing the things that they recommended that I do. And then I was like, oh, yeah, she really does have autism. And, you know, I have to do what I have to do. No one wants, you don't want to have a child with autism or, you know, want, you don't want your child to have these struggles or these difficulties, but ignoring the struggle is not going to make it go away. Just like ignoring her autism is not going to make it go away. 
Ignoring if you have diabetes, it's not going to make it go away. Ignoring if you have cancer, it's not going to make it go away. Um, so you just have to put on your big girl panties or your big boy boxers and you have to deal with it and give your kids the support that they need because you are the only person who can help them. You are their advocate. You are their primary support. Um, and that is your job as their parent. So you have to get over it and get them the support they need. Doubling back and getting the children the support that they need. Would you say that your child's pediatrician is probably the first step in getting that ball rolling or is there another avenue that's preferable? Um, I think that the pediatrician can be a good place to start, but it depends on your pediatrician. It depends on your pediatrician. Like my daughter's pediatrician at the time was not good. Um, I don't feel because she didn't even point out the fact that her speech was an issue, you know, and I had to bring that up. So if you don't recognize that certain things are going on, then that's not always the best resource. But if you are recognizing that there's a problem, they may, and this is from my experience in speaking with other parents, they may try to tell you, oh, don't worry about it. Wait a little longer. See what'll, you know, see if they'll make improvements down the road, that's not the problem. And I've specifically heard that from parents of children who are raising black children and who are raising girls or parents who are raising black children and who are raising girls that sometimes the doctor will not want to get them the help you get the support that you need. So sometimes the pediatrician may be a good place to go. Sometimes the pediatrician is not gonna be helpful at all. Um, so it really is gonna depend on your doctor is going to depend on the type of um, symptoms your child is displaying. So you may need to go beyond your doctor. I know we went to a developmental pediatrician and my daughter's developmental pediatrician now is amazing. So that may be somewhere else to go to get the ball rolling. Some people go to, I think, psychologists to see if they can get a diagnosis there. So what I would say is no matter what, if you feel like your child needs to get a get tested and someone tells you that it's not necessary right now, then you need to go somewhere else. And if they say the same thing, go somewhere else. And if they say the same thing, go somewhere else. Don't take the first thing that someone says as you know the Bible and just stick with that. Like you have to keep trying if you have a concern because every month and every year that you wait is time that they're not getting the support that they need if they need it. So to answer your question, I know that was really long, Yes, a pediatrician can be a good place to go, but it also may not be very helpful. You may need to go somewhere else. That is perfect because I wanna just reiterate that fact because everybody that we've had on the podcast that talks about autism, they speak to how critical it is to get intervention as early as possible. And so what you're saying, Look, if you if you hit one wall, <laughs> go around it and yeah. keep going around it. Keep, you know, go through the window. If the door is closed and locked, find another way. But you have to be an advocate for your child. And that's what you're speaking to. Advocate for your child. And so, you know, as I feel like there's so much to unpack because I feel like when it comes to autism, there are so many things we as a people 
have to really overcome to give our loved ones what they need. And sometimes that may not be socially acceptable in our families or in our homes, in our community. And so in order to display that love, because giving your child intervention, making sure that they have the right healthcare professionals on their side, that is an act of love. And so we wanna love our kids as deeply and as best as we can. And this is just one way to display that. So I felt like this conversation was just full of value and so important. And so if you are listening right now and you are a parent, I want you to know that you are not alone especially if you recognize that there are some differences that your child is dealing with. Get them the resources that they need, get their interventions, just like you just heard. And so um, as we you know, give our final words, is there anything you wanna leave with the audience that they can be, so they, they can be encouraged? Um, the reason why I label or I named my company Shining on the Spectrum is because too often when you have a child who has an autism diagnosis, the, the, the world wants to put this dark cloud over you. And they want to talk about everything negative that comes with having a child with autism. And honestly, this can go with any um, special need that your child may have, any you know challenges you may go through. Um, they want to put this dark cloud over you and, and limit you. They want to limit your child. They want to limit your family. They want to limit the experiences you can have. They want to limit where your child can go in life. And I look at my daughter and she's such a ray of sunshine. She's so beautiful, not just externally, but internally, her spirit, her personality, so beautiful. And she's like a little ray of sunshine. And I, I believe that the way that I approach raising a daughter, a child with autism, is to add as much sunshine and light to our family as possible and to her life as possible. I don't want her life to have a dark cloud over it because she has autism. I want as much sunshine, rainbows and butterflies and all that good stuff for her life and for my family, our family. And that's why I call it shining on the spectrum, because I believe that whether your child has autism or any other special need that may feel more challenging, it doesn't mean that your life has to end. It doesn't mean that you can't still have great experiences and do great things. It doesn't mean your child can't conquer the world, you know? Um, so just stay encouraged and realize that you can do just about anything. Even if your child has autism, you can find a way to make it work. And just don't be so negative about it. It's not the worst thing that can happen to your family or to your child or to your life. Um, and so just have that mindset shift about what it means to raise a child with autism. It can be really helpful being more positive about it and just trying to add more sunshine to your life because you can shine on the spectrum too. Beautiful. Oh, I love that. That's yes. great. That's right. Change your mind how you think about things. So as we wrap up, Shining on the Spectrum, can you share with our listeners where they can find you, website, social media, all of those things, so that if they would like to join your community and gain some support, how they can find Right now, the best place to go is actually my Instagram, which is Quiana A. Darden. 
um, on Instagram. Um, all the links are in my bio. So I have a podcast called Shining on the Spectrum where I talk about all things raising a child with autism. So that's a great place to go. Um, I will have all the links to like my club is opening. It'll be open by the time this episode airs. It'll be open by the time this episode airs. So links will be there. Or you can go to my website, shiningonthespectrum.com. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure listening to you and hearing your story. And we wish you the best. And listeners, please go to the show notes page at cleverlychanging.com to find out more information on how you can connect with Kiana. And that is all. Did you know that we sell merchandise to keep our podcast going? Order a hoodie, t-shirt, mugs, and more today. Visit cleverlychanging.com and click on the shop tab to place your order.